0: You are joining Making a Difference with Melissa Clark,
1: a new show that shares the compelling stories and voices of well-known and everyday people who change the world in big and small ways. Enjoy our guests, call in
0: or just listen to be inspired for this show was made with you in mind. Please join us every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with
1: our special guests. And you can listen to our recast at www.melissaclarkshow.com.
2: Thank you so much for joining us here and Making a Difference. I'm Melissa Clark. First, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Armin Garrow. Armin is an actor, he is a retired lieutenant from the East Providence Police Department and just an all-around amazing person. Hey, Armin, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you for uh, inviting me.
2: I uh, was so happy to have you. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with you. You are an actor. You, I'm gonna, I just want to run down all your accomplishments here. Um, you have a bachelor's in speech communications, criminal justice, right. A master's in administration of justice. Yes. From Sal, was that Salve? I saw Regina.
0: At the time, it was Salve Regina, the Newport College. It's now Salve Regina University. Yes.
2: Oh, nice, nice. I love Newport. (laughs) Um, You hold a ninth degree black belt, Grand Master, which is so impressive. Yeah, that
0: was uh, uh, awarded to me by uh, my instructor. uh, Simeon George Pizzari in Providence, Rhode Island.
2: Oh, that's yeah. so wonderful! You're a retired lieutenant of the Providence Police Department. You retired in 2015.
0: East, East Providence Police Department. Oh, East okay. okay.
2: Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, that and you retired in yes. 2015.
0: Yes, I was hired in 1985, and I worked uh, right. At Thirty. I did 30 years, and I retired in 19, uh, 2015. Yes.
2: Okay, we're gonna discuss a couple of things that are going on in today's world a little bit later, but I really wanna get into all your, your acting. Uh, you're sure. an incredible talent. Um, you've studied everything under the sun, behind the scenes in theater. Uh, you have lighting design experience, set design, playwriting, producing. I actually met you. Um, you were producing The Last Sicilian. It was It took place here in New York City at 13th Street. Uh, Repertory Theater, and it's uh, Nick Albanese, Mm. and that's how I met you, so I'm so happy that I met you. Yeah, that's right.
3: Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was the uh, first time I had uh, uh, produced something theatrically, and helping him out, and finding a place, helping him find a place in the city. Mm. Uh, That was a nice experience. It was a nice piece of work that he did.
2: It was a really great show. Yeah, he wrote that, uh, directed it, and you produced it.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was a lot. That was a good experience. It was a very good experience. Uh, I got to know Joe Batista, the artistic yes. director of the theater. Yeah. And that was a good experience. I got to meet some wonderful people. I got to meet, I met you there and I met mm-hmm. some other very nice, uh, wonderful people there in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in New York. Uh, so I, uh, I look forward to doing something like that again someday, uh, either with Nick or with somebody else. It was a good experience. I enjoyed that.
2: Yeah, you were, you were like the boss walking around. I was like, oh, my God, look at this guy. <laughs> you did, you did well, such 90 a great 90%, job.
0: I, I think 90% of that was I had nothing else to do.
2: <laughs> so that was that was a really good uh, play. Uh, you guys worked very well together. Um, and Thank I, you. Thank something you. I also want to mention, you're a an honor, honorary oh. chairperson and ambassador for Make-A-Wish Foundation.
0: I was the honorary chairperson in 2000. Uh, I think it was 2007 and 2008,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, that was a real good experience. They had reached out to me through through one of their members um, to uh, serve as uh, the uh, uh, to serve as their, their uh, image that they were uh, promoting at that time yeah. uh, for their black tie event and their their annual fundraiser. So I did it uh, two years. And I got involved, and they uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation in Rhode Island branched off, and I think they're they're they do their business mostly in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and in Massachusetts now.
3: Uh-huh. Um,
0: there was some uh, internal matters, but uh, at the end of the day. Uh, most of the people that uh, worked uh, closely with uh, that organization in Rhode Island have now established themselves as Children's Wishes of Rhode Island so yeah. i've uh, worked with them since uh, it, they do the same thing they they provide a special uh, a special memories and special uh, experiences for children who uh, are the uh, who have been born with or have acquired life threatening disabilities or diseases or yeah. uh, impairments life-threatening and they uh they do their best to uh, to provide a nice memory for a child and and their family so that they can have one good special experience together uh while while the child is with them Uh, when i retired Mm
3: -hmm. i had
0: uh, dedicated my retirement uh uh, dinner to um, uh, the children's wishes and we were able to raise uh about seven thousand dollars to send uh, this little girl, Eva, and her her entire family to Disney World. They go to a they uh, they uh, uh, choose a place of their own liking,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, children's wishes uh, will uh, send them and their family, whether it's to Italy or to Hawaii or Disney World. A lot of a lot of kids like Disney World, and that's where she yeah. went for about I think ten days. Yeah, it was a good experience
3: that's to do so
0: something nice for them.
2: Yeah, and you're the ambassador for life, though. Now is that correct?
0: That was a that was a uh, a moniker that I was given the, an, an yes. ambassador for life. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was kind of neat. Yeah, that's so great. I mean, uh, right. I didn't get the I didn't get the the limo or the uh, the car service, but that's okay.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
0: I'm just joking. I'm just you're joking.
2: So, <laughs> <laughs> you're so wonderful. Um, you know, besides all yeah, of your you. education, you. well, you're very kind and nice. Uh, you're a big guy, you know, so you. You, you think maybe perhaps he's going to be me. No, he's wonderful. He's got these beautiful blue eyes, this beautiful smile, this beautiful wife. And I'm just so happy to know you. And I thank Nick very much uh, for all the people that I met uh, because of him. Thank you, sir. Uh, besides your uh, education, uh, you've worked alongside of stars such as Jennifer Lawrence and Christian Bale yeah. in American Hustle. Uh, you were in yeah. Leonardo, You were with Leonardo DiCaprio in The Departed. He kicked your hiney in that store with the other guy, right? The uh, you guys played two well, mobsters. It's,
0: it's, we we were paid very. We, we were paid to have him do that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was John. The other guy was uh, John, but they call him Johnny C in the business. His uh, his name is Johnny Chenatampo.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: He's a uh, a stunt man, uh, a stunt actor, but he's he's an actor as well, and he's doing much more uh, more acting now. Very mm-hmm. good guy. Good. Very good at what he does. Very did good you, at what he does. W- yeah. w-
2: did you uh, did you do your own stunts in that scene?
0: I did my own stunts. Yes, okay. yes, That's, I did.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in real life that would happen, but you know, in the movie, it was a really good film. I actually was on the set of that film up in Boston and I had a little scene, but they cut it out, but I got paid for it, so I was happy about that. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Did, you,
0: did you get to meet him? Did you get to meet him?
2: I was watching Leonardo DiCaprio. You know the scene where he's with the Irishman and they, uh, they put a gun in the guy's leg and he goes, I'm supposed to feel this, I, I'm supposed to not feel this, I feel it, I feel it, and then they run out of the house. We, oh yeah, 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 yes, we, yes, yeah. We were walking towards. We were supposed to be walking. Then they were just supposed to, you know, show us, and the whole thing got cut off. So he was just kind of looking at us. But yeah, I was able to watch it for nine hours. That scene literally was about a minute. It's so weird how they do these films, and yeah, you know, yes, you're waiting they, around. Yeah. But my question. Good
0: experience.
2: Yeah. Well, my question to you. Oh, and also, you were in films such as Federal Hill, Michael Carrente, um mm-hmm. the, the Sopranos. Brotherhood, yes. which you had a significant role in it. Uh, vinyl. Yeah, Brotherhood
0: was a lot of fun. Mm. Yes, vinyl. That was a real, that was a real good piece of work. It was too bad it was canceled, but uh, yeah. I had a lot of fun doing that. Made some great friends. That was a great story.
2: Mm. We're in the invention of lying with Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Yes. And Wu Tang.
0: Oh, Wu Tang and American <laughs> Saga. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. With that last, uh, I think that was last. Spring, Yeah, a little over a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was in uh, the spring of 19, winter spring of 19. We did that. And I uh, think Hulu is going to bring back, from what I've heard, I think Hulu is bringing that back for a second season. Mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, uh, I'll be asked back uh, to, uh, to uh, participate, but it was a wonderful experience nonetheless.
2: I hope so. You're, you're fantastic. Yeah. Uh, my question to you is, what was the most challenging role that you've done in your career?
0: Well, they're all challenging. Every single one is, no matter what you do, because um, you're you you're, uh, you're, you're uh, taking on the uh, the role of someone uh, someone else, you know, uh-huh. and or something else, and it isn't really you. So you try to use whatever tools you have at your disposal uh-huh. to uh, to embrace uh, someone else's life. That you may or may not know anything about, and you want to make sure that each uh, each job that you work on is uh, is not really a uh, a carbon copy of any kind of something you've done before,
3: sure. uh,
0: so that your work can be unique to the to the job that you're doing. Uh, bent, the play bent in Second Story Theater in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, um, uh, and. Uh, it was, oh, actually, it was in Middletown because they had moved their theater to Middletown,
3: uh-huh.
0: and I played the role of Greta. So crazy. And I had to learn how to walk, in, I had to walk, in, I had to learn how to walk in high heels. <laughs> so that was that was somewhat challenging, but uh, you looked very beautiful. Than that, <laughs> what? <You look> beautiful. <laughs> From what I'm told, nobody can match a set of legs like that, and That's not in so fishnets. That's so
2: funny. No. <laughs> That's so. How did you feel dressing up in uh, in women's clothing?
0: well uh, if you if you look at that uh it's it it really isn't women's clothing it's it's uh sort of a uh a grotesque combination uh i mean i think that's a motorcycle jacket and a uh, some kind of platinum blonde wig and uh, well the the character uh, greta is 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 a guy who's just trying to make it in uh and in, in pre was, the play is about the mistreatment of homosexuals in uh, uh, pre-Nazi, pre-World War II Nazi Germany in the 30s, uh, late middle to late 30s. And uh, this is just his bar and he wants to do business and he dresses up in any way he can to entertain his clientele. Uh-huh. So I was free to, I was free to uh, uh, put together something uh, that I thought would be unique for that, for that uh, performance. And uh, so it was, it was more of a, uh, of a, somewhat of a, a, a twisted version of a street walker rather than women's clothing
3: mm. even though
0: they were you know high heels and fishnets and uh some kind of lace that i had around my <laughs> waist <laughs> but uh it was a, it was a lot of fun to be able to explore that kind of uh underbelly of uh of uh, the enter- uh, i don't think underbelly's the right word mm-hmm. uh, that, uh that 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 culture the culture in that in that era.
3: Sure.
0: So, uh, but that was the most challenging thing, I think. <laughs> uh, the, you know, you have to learn how to, you know, learn how to put your makeup on in a certain way and mm-hmm. uh, uh, move about in a certain way to try to. Uh, there was a song that I was given to sing, and I pretty much was left to uh, come up with my own tune to it.
2: Sure, it was nice. They let you bring in your own creativity.
0: At that time, yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah. Well, it's, always, it's always nice to be allowed to have that freedom, sure. that lateral uh, freedom, yeah.
2: So you've been in showbiz for 45 years now. 1975, you started acting. Well,
0: 1975, I, uh, I, I had done some experimental theater in Boston,
3: mm-hmm.
0: on environmental theater, and it was, it, was, it was very bizarre and very avant-garde. Uh, and I, I can't say that at, at that early age, you know, at the age of 19, 20 years old, right. I can't, I can't really say that I ever really understood what I was doing within right. the context of what the uh, what was asked of the performers. But I did it, and um, I uh, was, I was not really successful uh, at all. Uh, I, uh, I had attempted many auditions, and I had. Uh, I, I never really, um, uh, was, uh, um, commercially successful. I w I was not, I did not market myself. Well, I didn't know how to market myself. Well, I didn't even know what marketing myself meant. Right. So I pretty much kicked around and, uh, I wound up at, uh, 1970, uh, 70, I think it was 79. Yeah. I think it was 1979. I, I, uh, I began uh, training at the uh, Trinity Rep Conservatory at the, under the auspices of the uh, Trinity Repertory Company in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, because uh-huh. I was living in that area then, and um, I learned quite a bit. I had some wonderful instructors. It was a wonderful experience. Part of our duties as students was to have to work on the uh, main stage and uh, main stage productions, both uh-huh. in the downstairs, This was a smaller, more intimate theater downstairs than the one upstairs, but we worked um, doing set design. And I had done summer, summer theater uh, a couple of, a few years before that in, at the Keene Summer Theater in Keene, New Hampshire, and also at the Berkshire Repertory Company uh, one summer working on Man of La Mancha. And uh, I had learned a lot about set design and lighting trinity rep conservatory was a wonderful wonderful experience i got to work with some of the best actors around uh richard jenkins i got to work with richard uh on on a on a production there barbara blossom barbara meek uh david c jones some really really great people adrian hall richard cavanaugh uh the list goes on and on some of the some of the most uh uh, interesting people and wonderful actors and artists and stage managers and even the even the theater managers there uh top first rate people and i I really really learned a lot from them in my uh in my two years experience there at the conservatory We're directed by uh was founded uh, by uh Larry Eric and david Elliott what turned you on to act in well in uh, in uh when I was at the Albany Academy, I went to Albany Academy in in Albany, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in I grew up in, Waterbury in Troy, New York, and I entered the Albany Academy uh, starting in the uh, in the seventh grade. They call it the first form. And part of the uh, the English department mandated that every student in the school,
3: mm-hmm. for
0: example, the seventh, eighth, and ninth graders, uh, had to um, prepare. a a poem, a song, or a uh, a short piece of prose, three to five minutes long, commit it to memory and perform it for the classroom and you would be graded accordingly Mm
3: -hmm. in
0: your appearance, your delivery,
3: everything. uh, Yeah.
0: And uh, that was part of your grade. That was part of your grade for the English, uh, your English grade for that semester. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the, uh, the best of the students would be selected to compete against one another, and uh, eventually, they would hold this big uh, uh, event in the auditorium, and the, the, uh, the one student selected for the seventh grade would go up in front of the entire student body mm-hmm. uh, and, and perform their, their, they called it the annual declamation contest.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, in my class, uh, there were only two people that ever represented our class in this event. Right. It was uh, David, David Perry, uh, another student, and, and, and me. We were the only two that ever did this as well. And it, it became, uh, I, I, I won that contest in the, uh, the ninth grade. And then the 10th, 11th, and 12th graders would have to write their own piece. So it would have to be an original piece, five yeah. to 10 minutes long, and do the same thing. Well, I And and you can only win it two years in a row if Uh you went from one category to the next. So I I won it in the ninth grade. I won it in the 10th grade. And then I won it again in my senior year. But this was one thing that I did better than anything else I ever did. And I was able to really make a mark. And I was better at it than anyone else there or as good as the the best people that have ever performed. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But again, I didn't know what I could do with that.
3: Mm-hmm. So
0: one of the uh, one of the instructors, Frank Nash, he was a he was a Civil War historian. He was one of my English teachers. He said, you know, have you ever decided to uh, try out and join the dramatic arts department uh, mm-hmm. and participate in their productions? I said, nah, that's that's really not for me. He said, well, you know, uh, so and so and so and so are on that. I said, really, really? And I these are people that I respected in the school. Right. I said, you know, well, maybe, maybe uh he was just, well, you know, you, you seem to be, enjoy yourself up there. You Maybe this is something that you could do. And I, I thought, well, okay. I, I gave it a try and I was in a, um, in a production of the Fantastics. Uh, I played the old Shakespearean actor. And then I did something from uh, something by Woody Allen called Don't Drink the Water.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, then I did something else uh, from Inherit the Wind. And it was just a a scene, a couple of scenes from Inherit the Wind. And uh, I really, I thought, wow, this is, I like this. I like this more than I like anything else I've done. And that's how that started. That's, That's, you know, I just loved it. I just, I absolutely loved it. You know, whether it was the scene study or anything else I did, the interacting and coming up with uh, ideas on how to do this and how to do that. And coming up with an ad lib, if I happen to forget what we were doing, you uh know, that's so the, nothing can be more embarrassing than to be up there, you know, by yourself and forgetting, forgetting something. So that I found that very challenging and all of the nervousness that precedes it, I found to be a challenge and uh, I really fell in love with it. You know, it uh, that's where it started.
2: Do you prefer films um, as opposed to theater or do you like them both the
0: same? Uh, I think I like them both the same. I, I, I you know, I, I sometimes prefer to do theater, uh, depending on the kind of story it is, and the kind of uh, work that can evolve from it. Uh-huh. Um, there really is something to be said for both. Uh, the uh, film provides an experience that you, you can't, uh, you just, you're just not going to replicate in, in theater.
3: Uh-huh. And
0: theater prov- provides an experience uh, that you're not going to be able to replicate in television or film. Right. So they really are two different, two different uh, mediums that, uh, that have their own strengths and uh, that you have to try to, if this is what you want to do for a living, there's different things to exploit in both and try to make the best of them.
2: So where do you go mentally? I've seen, a, I've seen your work. I've seen a lot of your work. And um, you, know, you, bring, you kind of take over the screen, to be honest with you. You have a very strong presence, and, uh, and you Thank make an you. In, you make an impact on the um, on the acting alone, just with everybody. So, where do you go mentally when when you're acting?
0: I uh, I don't think I go anywhere because I'm I'm already long before things begin.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You try to understand what it is that's going on, sure. and you slowly wh- whether you. I mean, sometimes you don't have the benefit of having a script if you're doing something in film work or mm-hmm. television. They'll, you'll just get just what you're going to, going to be uh, participating in and nothing else. Right. Um, but it's not, I mean, I've never really gone anywhere mentally, but I think what happens is from reading and rereading and researching the work that you have before you and understanding uh, the the journey of the person and people that you're going to be involved with um, there is there is a beginning and then there is the uh, the end uh-huh. and you I think at least what I do is try to um, envision and embrace uh, what has happened in years previous or some unit of time previous to the beginning and what uh, where life may lead me uh, after the uh, the written end of whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. So you're already in that mindset. You're already where you uh, you think you should be by the time someone asks you to begin or to say in your ter- in, in 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 a term of art of action or something like that. Uh It's, you know, because people that are watching this are looking at a slice of the, of the life that, uh, a piece of the story uh, that certainly had been going on before and will continue to go on after uh, the end. Uh, They're, they're, they get a little peek into it. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're voyeurs. They're, they're observing from the side uh, what this particular story is about,
2: Uh Uh you know.
0: Am I I making sense?
2: Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm just in case an actor, an inspiring actor is listening. um, You know, I've had a lot of actors say to me that, you know, you have to understand what role you are are in and, um, you know, you just have to be Mm. in the moment. Um, So, yeah, like Federico Castelluccio, Mm. he he told me that. So I I always like to get everybody's opinion. And that's true. Yeah.
0: And that's true. And everyone has you know every single person there's no right or wrong way. Right. Because at the end of the day if a person goes to a theater mm-hmm. and they've paid whatever they've paid for a ticket or if they've been invited it doesn't matter they've they're giving their time they're offering their support they're sitting there. Yeah. And um whatever whatever it takes so that who is that whoever whoever is in that theater uh has has um Gotten what they expected in terms of a story, uh, if there's a moral to the story or if there's some evolution and growth happening or some learning experience, as long as they've left the theater, and this is, you know, part of the market, satisfied with what they took the time to go see.
3: Right. Right. As long
0: as the person who has paid a ticket to go into uh, a movie theater and they come away believing that they have gotten their money's worth and they enjoyed themselves, they learned something about relationships in in mankind or, or humankind, or understood a story a little bit better, or mm-hmm. an issue, or a a um, uh, a, a life, in, uh, an impactful experience in one's life, something that has meaning. You know, as long as something is happening, even if you went to something and saw some action packed uh, sci fi and you just wanted a nice time uh, yeah. and you didn't really learn anything from it, you didn't care, you just enjoyed yourself. As long as the customer is satisfied however however this actor gets there and this one goes her way and she does it her way and this guy does it his way and i do it my way Uh as long as the final product the work product uh, offered to the public is what they uh, are going to be satisfied with well then that's that's what you want to have happen and i think that's i think that's an important thing for people who aspire to do this remember is that uh it's It's nice to know I mean, I approach everything I do differently. I never approach the same thing the same way uh, different matters, different roles the same way i i I always try to uh be very um, very distant from it and then uh, and layer by layer by layer approach it in whatever way I think is appropriate for that era or for that time, uh so that it's fresh and unique at least with, for, uh, in, in terms of how I uh, approach something and then how I have to work with other people so it's all. It's, so it's not stale. You understand what I'm saying?
2: I understand. Uh, yeah. There
0: isn't a hardened, fast rule. Well, oh, this is the way this is done, and that's the way that's done, and that's the way that's done. It, everyone's got a different approach and, and and a whole different perspective. That and I think that's one thing I really love about this because when you approach your work that way, there always there's always going to be something new and different and exciting. It's, oh, wow. I didn't know you could do it that way. Hey, hey, I had this idea. What if we try this? And what about that? And I've, I've, uh, I've been able, I've been very lucky to be able to create a nice couple of uh, instances in the work that I've done with other people when we both share in our ideas and come up with something that no one felt was even in existence when the script was being written. So, you know, so that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty, uh, That's a pretty neat way to, to work with other people.
2: And I never heard anybody say this. You like, you're, you're bringing, you worry about the audience and how they feel. I've never heard that before. I've never heard such, um, like you're being very unselfish right now with what you're saying and working with other people. Is that bad? I never heard that. This is wonderful.
0: Well, think about it. I mean, what, what are you, if not for the people that like your work and pay to see your work, you know, I'm I mean, just, without, yeah. uh, without, uh, what I tell people this, that, uh, I, I mean, I, uh, I had an opportunity to tell this to people when I, 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 I went to an event and, uh, there were a lot of people who uh, were fans of the Sopranos, for example. Yes. And I'll meet a lot of people like that. They, you know, mm-hmm. they'll contact me and, uh, they'll ask for a signed autograph and things like a signed picture, things like that autograph photo. Yeah. And I, when I tell them, I mean, they'll tell you all, the, the accolades that you get from these, these fans are greatly appreciated and genuine and organic and very heartfelt. And I so appreciate it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I tell them, I said, look, I know you love the story. I know you love this, the, the Sopranos and this and my work and it. Thank you so much. But I said, I'm going to tell you something they saw what? I said, without you, no.
3: without
0: your, without your feverish, loyal, uh, viewership and support and appreciation, there is no Sopranos. There is no, no me. There is no Coco. There's no nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true with anything. I don't care if it's a you have Broadway plays that are the longest running Broadway plays or some of the best stuff out there without the people that want to go and enjoy this experience. Well, without them, well, what's, what's the point, yeah. you know, they're, they're, those are the people that you're doing it for because you're, you, you know, in some small way, in some small way, you're participating in, in the improvement of the quality of the life of the people that are experiencing what you do. They they come away out of a whether it's a ballet or a symphony orchestra they walk out of Lincoln Center feeling better feeling good and maybe looking at life at a, a little bit of a different way through through the through the values of of the interpretation of life through art and they see things a different way and they they may not feel so bad about something they had been feeling bad about before they went in there maybe I don't know yeah. but. You know, th- those are the people that keep keep the arts alive and keep it going and keep it funded, um, uh, and I mean, that's how I that's how I look at it. You 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 know, you're you're servicing the the, the desires and the the needs in some sometimes the needs and the desires of people that want to. Uh, leave, uh, leave their home and go to a theater or pay-per-view in their home, you know, subscribe for something to watch what you do.
3: Yeah. Otherwise but, you
0: know, what what you do is, 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 it's just there. It's, it's, it's there on solenoid or it's, it's been done. And if nobody goes there to see it, well then
3: uh,
0: what do you have? You know, you got to keep that in mind. Yeah. That's important. It's very yeah. important.
2: Yes, it is. That's, that's very nice. And we actually worked together on the Sopranos con and I saw the way that you were interacting with, um, your fans and, uh, wow, That I had was a, a
0: great experience.
2: Yeah. I had to wait a half an hour because you were talking to this woman and you, and you just wanted, you could just see the engagement in, in how nice you were to her. And I'm standing there. I'm like, Oh my God, why is this going to stop? But you could see you just, you, you didn't want to, you didn't want her to leave because she was such a fan of yours i um, and I actually took a picture. Remember the picture I sent to you of you? And you the- know, I think
0: I know who you, yeah, I think I know who you're talking about because I just, I, I happened, I was at a, I was at a theatrical reading the night before. I think it was the week before the couple of days before that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sitting in a, my wife and I were, were with a, a producer and a director in a theater, um, uh, down. Uh, it was in the city. It was in Manhattan. And, uh, she had walked up to me and asked me if if uh she said you're going to be at soprano car aren't you and i said well yes she says oh my god i'm gonna be there i'm gonna be there i've got my tickets and i remembered her yeah. and so i told, I'll tell you what i said you make sure you tell me that you know that this was you i'll be there she said oh no no i've got to go yes you know and i i, I couldn't let her go unless She got, because she wasn't able to go for very long. She had to work that day. She came in for a little bit. So yeah, uh, those people, they they go to work every single day. They pay taxes. They're trying to feed their kids. They're, they're working their butts off, making it through life. So if, if you can give them a little something that's nice when they come to tell you how much they appreciate your work, that's a good feeling. You that's know, so nice I, you to I always tell people I do the easy part. They're the ones doing the hard work when they, they're out there doing whatever they do. You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, so you know, because, you, I, yeah, you worked for a long time, uh, you know, as a police officer. So, you know, yeah, lieutenant at the end. Um, you know, I want to just ask you one more question. And then we're going to head over to uh, the situation that's going on now. Uh, my last okay. question to you is uh, you're six, two. You're a big guy yes. and all most of your um your acting has been mafia roles, gangster. Do you think that you're stereotyped? Sometimes. Mm.
0: But that's that's part of that's part of the industry that you the, that anybody has to uh certainly understand. Uh yeah, I think it's, it's uh, you, you need to understand that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh I think most most you know professionals do. Uh they uh, accept it, they'll embrace it. Um But on the other hand, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only thing that you can do. And I think the most important thing that any actor or any artist should keep in mind is that uh, you always hold yourself open to doing anything uh, and any kind of role because there's, because in the real world that art imitates, there are people that do certain jobs or have certain positions that uh, that don't look anything like you would expect them to look
3: right you know right
0: uh, there are there are plenty of uh i mean there are plenty of people who are involved in organized crime who uh don't look anything like you would uh let's say typically expect them to look like
3: that's right I've
0: I've seen them I've seen them I've I've worked in clubs and uh, observed them uh-huh. and uh, uh some of them who uh, some people who uh act as if they are uh involved in that uh aren't at all right. because right. they're just they're just uh playing make-believe and they want their friends to think that they're that they're this or they're that Right. Uh, i mean there 's all kinds of people in this world that that uh just pretend <laughs> it's it's like just it 's nothing wrong with it as long yeah. as it 's not harmful to other as long right. as it isn 't harming anybody right but uh but but you know th- uh theater uh, especially television and f- television and film is a visual it's it's uh, uh, in a very uh powerfully visual mediums so uh th- they sometimes are looking for someone that fits what most people would expect someone to look like. And that's what that, you know, because they have to market this and they have to, you know, they have to get the investment back on their uh, they have to get money back on their investment. They want to make sure that people are buying into uh, what they're selling. That's not always the case, not always the case, but a lot of times that's the uh, that's a reality that uh, you have to uh, abide by.
2: I like you know? the judge that you played in Mul- in the Mulberry street. You played a judge, a very, oh. lov- a very caring and, and lovable character, very different than your other characters. Did you enjoy yeah, playing that? that was,
0: I loved, I loved doing that. Yeah. I love doing that. And, and the, uh, the, the director had given me a little, a little bit of background to work with, uh, with this particular individual. And I went with it and, uh, yeah that was that was that was a real uh, that was a real joy to be able to work on something like that because I usually would not have been approached about doing that kind of role.
2: That's so yeah. great That's so wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for giving us all this information and I hope uh, I'm, I'm sure you helped out a lot of uh, inspiring actors out there uh, because you were a cop, we are uh, going through crazy times. Uh, you are the perfect person to ask some questions with, uh, that's going around, going around in America. Um, what, uh, what's your take on what's going on with the police force and civilians right now?
0: Well, um, I mean, it, it certainly isn't something that's pleasant for, uh, citizens or police officers.
3: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, so um, I will say that uh, the events of the last few weeks uh-huh. certainly um, uh, have uh, uh, give uh, people pause to reflect on a watershed time in our history uh-huh. because what happened, uh, uh, what happened in Minneapolis there just isn't any excuse for, there's no way, absolutely no way that should have ever happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, to watch that on film, to watch that man die. And he died, he died right there. Mm -hmm. He died right there on the ground. Mm -hmm. That was the most, that was one of the most horrifying things I'd ever seen. And, um, one of the things I come away, go ahead.
2: Did you, you watch the whole thing? I couldn't watch it.
0: Yeah, I watched it. And, uh, it was horrifying. It truly was horrifying, and uh, the um, one of the things I came away uh, came away with from that was that I was absolutely dumbfounded that any department in this country still authorized the use of chokeholds. I just I cannot believe that there are any departments that still authorize that. Yeah. Uh, when I when I went to the police academy the uh, in Rhode Island in 1985, it was clearly and it was specifically explained to us that uh, anything like that was outlawed. It was banned. It's banned practice. Uh, there's just no way that anyone ever would get trained to do that. Um, the only thing we were ever taught was that God forbid you were pinned down and you were being um, Attacked to such a degree that you thought you were going to die
3: uh-huh. from the
0: beating or from being pinned down
3: uh-huh.
0: uh, They would tell us to use whatever you, whatever was at your disposal Let's say you were pinned down and you couldn't reach your weapon Right uh, because you thought you were going to die as a result of what was happening
3: uh-huh.
0: uh, Only then and only then would you employ any method any and all method available to you to try to save your own life Never, never were we actually taught to do anything like that. And he, and he, I was one of our department's use of force instructors. And one of the things that we were, that I was specifically taught as an instructor by the people that were teaching B was to stay away from the throat, stay away from the neck area
3: uh-huh.
0: uh, in order not to inhibit blood flow or not to inhibit uh, breathing capability. So that's a, that's a huge problem, that really is. And I, and I, uh, I have to say that um, there has to be, has to be a, uh, a monumental overhaul on the, on the profession of policing, there, there has to be. And I think it should come from the Justice Department. And, what, and I think there's a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of things that people aren't aware of with law enforcement procedures. There are policies and procedures and protocols that exist in one department that are vastly different than the, the ones in another department. And I think what has to happen is that there, there absolutely must be a consistent yeah. and fair and uh, across the board um, behavioral protocol of conduct in every single law enforcement agency in the country, whether it's an elected sheriff in the Midwest or a a part-time special officer uh, someplace, or uh, from the FBI all the way down. There has to be consistent, fair treatment of all people no matter what, no matter what, and, one of the things that I've always, one of the disagreements I have with what has been going on
3: uh-huh.
0: is, this, is the notion of systemic racism.
3: Uh-huh.
0: And I've, to, to, uh, systemic racism is uh, a term of art that would uh, indicate that racism is part of a system of policing or part of a system of a corporation or a business. And while racism will exist in those areas, it's 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 much more societal than it is systemic. It, there's nothing that's taught at a police academy, or or at a corporate supervisory um, convention, for example, where policies and procedures that uh, are uh, are uh, laid out for the running of a corporation or a business or a a law enforcement agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not part of the training. What happens is racism, I believe, is a learned behavior Mm
3: -hmm. that starts
0: in the home. It it evolves and grows with a child over a period of years. And unfortunately, there are people who, when they are interviewed for uh, in the screening process, for law enforcement positions, and if when they're uh, going through their, uh, through their oral interviews,
3: uh-huh.
0: um, they're, they're able to get through their, their psychological testing uh-huh. and the other vetting procedures and protocols, and uh, um, uh, unless they express, expressly, uh, express, uh, express themselves in such a way that uh, clearly shows a racist attitude, unless there is something in the criminal background of someone that shows something like that it's almost impossible to uh, to know that someone has these kinds of uh, th- this manner of thinking in their process
3: right.
0: so what ends up happening is they become part of an organization they become part of an organization uh, such as a police department and uh, by the time their uh, their their views on race become exposed someone's been harmed, right? Someone's been harmed or someone's been uh, crippled or someone's been killed. And what, um, what one of the things I think that police departments nationwide with uh, individual officers uh, have to consider is that first, well, first and foremost, I want to say that the overwhelming majority of police officers are good people. They do good work. Yeah. And and what they do is um, is uh, almost, almost immeasurable in their providing uh, the maintenance and the uh, either the uh, maintaining or the improvement of the quality of life and I think that's one thing that really has to change rather than being in a position of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And, and law enforcement as a craft. I remember a couple of my instructors would refer to law enforcement as a craft rather than a profession. I would argue that no, this is a profession. It has to be. It has to be viewed as a profession,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: it has to be viewed from the from the point of view that you're there to improve the quality of life, or at the very least, to maintain a healthy uh, quality of life for the people that are. Uh, that you're working for, and yes. you are working for them in their environment. Right. It's it's not it it can't be the view of you're there to enforce the law. Uh, you have to be there with the view that you're there to improve the quality of life so that people can pursue what they want to pursue under. uh, under the the laws that are provided by the government that are approved by the legislators. You are there to make sure that that citizens can enjoy their quality of life. And if, if the enforcement of law is what it takes from time to time to do that, well then fine. That's when you do it. But you have to make sure that all I can do is tell you this. Uh, you remember how we talked about when I was talking about the, you're talking about acting and Mm -hmm. you said, well, I never heard anybody look, look at it that way where, correct. You're, worried, you're you're concerned about what the what the audience is, is is viewing well it's the same thing in law enforcement
3: you've yeah. got to
0: be concerned with about the quality of life of the people that are living in the areas that you're being paid to monitor and to to provide a safe haven so that people can open up can open a business can run a business can go to work can take a walk down the sidewalk can take their dog for a walk and all of the things that people like to do and when you when you're doing that if you're doing that from the from the proper perspective um, when I was, when I was in charge of a shift, I used to tell guys on a midnight shift, go up to the Dunkin' Donuts, go up to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Bodego or in, in East Providence, there were Cumberland Farms, Dairy Mart. These are late night places that are open all night. Go in there, make sure those people know who you are, see how they're doing. Make yeah. sure they know your name. Make sure they know your name. Get, get to know them, have them get to know you, you know, uh, all too often there's this there's this there's this uh, partition uh-huh. between law enforcement officers and the public that they serve and one of the things I think law enforcement officers have to keep in mind is that because of societal racism there are going to be people and not just racism uh, there are other there are other people that work in law enforcement officer uh, in law enforcement that uh, like uh, like some of the racists that are there don't belong there for other reasons. Uh-huh. And I think it's the duty, and this is a difficult thing, because when people join the ranks of a law enforcement agency, there's this camaraderie, there's an esprit de corps, uh-huh. there's a fraternal uh, linkage and 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 uh, adhesion between the members of the police department. There's nothing wrong with that, but that can't come into conflict with observing, recognizing, and identifying and extracting abhorrent behavior. It has to be done. If there's someone that you're working side by side with that you notice a problem with, a serious problem, It has to be addressed right. because that's the that's the officer that's gonna really make your life miserable if 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 you're there with him and he does something he's not supposed to do. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you enough, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that departments do everything they can to vet people coming onto the job, and how important it is that no matter what their seniority, no matter what their rank, no matter what their union affish, uh, affiliation, no matter who they're related to, or whatever it is, if there's, if there's someone in there that should not be uh, wearing a gun, holding onto a badge, and uh, do, going out into the public, if there's someone there that doesn't belong there, they have got to damn well do something about it. Because it, it only takes all it takes is one bad cop that's mm-hmm. all it takes and one one bad cop mm. is one too many and i will say again the overwhelming majority fine people really good people but here and there in each department in every single department there's at least one or two people that are real problems and when, when I, when I witnessed something like that, and when I stood up to something like that, I had to, I had to deal with the adverse reaction of other people on the depart, on the department when yeah. I did that. Right. I had to deal with that. Right. And if you're going to do this kind of work, you've got to make sure you can, you can, you, you can take what's going to happen if you do stand up to some of this, this abhorrent behavior to try to do something about it, because the reaction is going to be very, very harsh. It is and uh,
3: right.
0: there are people that join police departments. I got to tell you, they, they sometimes they don't know what they're in for, you know, and you better, and you, Can't ha- handle and you it. have to make sure you, right. Uh, if, if you, if, if, if that officer, let me tell you something. If that officer in, in Minneapolis yeah. or the three of them or the four of them, if, if, if choking that gentleman was what they thought they needed to do to control him, then there's something wrong with their physical capabilities. There's something wrong if that's what they thought they had to do, because they didn't have to do that. You see what I'm saying? You've got to be, you have got to make sure when, when you go on to a police department, you got to make sure that you're physically capable. You got to make sure that you're mentally, your mind is clear, that you're not carrying the problems from home onto the job, that you're, you're clear, you're concise, you're fair and you are physically ready to be able to deal with somebody who may be a little bit more difficult for you to arrest than somebody else. That is so, so, so important. I can't stress enough that when you go into, into your locker and you're taking your vest and your weapon, your ammo, your taser, your pepper spray, and your your asp- collas- collapsible baton or whatever it is that you use, and all of your equipment, whether it's 20 or 25 pounds of it, it's, it's like you're suiting, it's like an NFL football player suiting yeah. up to go on the field. You got to make sure you go out there and you're going to do your job and you're going to do it well. And you're going to be fair to people. And in police departments that work this way and, and, and genuinely care about the neighborhoods they're, they're servicing and, and, and extract people that have abhorrent behavior, those are the departments that don't have these problems. I, I, I can't emphasize enough how how bad an influence an officer who who mistreats people, and I'm not just talking about the things that we've witnessed. I'm talking about the kind of mistreatment that equates with. Uh, uh, a department store manager that follows somebody down an aisle because they think they 're going to steal somebody and the, and the and the big indicator that they think they 're going to steal somebody is because the guy's an African American that kind of bullshit you
3: right. know what I mean right
0: that is the kind of behavior that is the kind of attitude that unfortunately is harbored by officers here and there in different departments and i can 't I can't tell you how bad it is, how absolutely bad it is when someone behaves that way, because what they're doing in behaving that way and getting away with it is slowly enraging the citizenry, slowly, little by little, enraging yeah. people. And, you, and when you do that, expect to have a response.
1: What's
2: expect happening it. now? That's what's happening now here, well, here in New York. Not
0: su- I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised by it. I'm not. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But I'm not surprised because, because too many police departments are not really at the forefront of singling out people that don't belong there and getting rid of them. They're just they're they're way behind, way behind in doing that. When I when I was when I, I'll never forget, I will never forget it was nineteen eighty four mind him in 86
3: mm-hmm.
0: i was called to a to a business to, about a suspicious i had to go down there for an sp they called it an sp a suspicious person so i go to this place i'm a patrol officer
3: mm-hmm.
0: and i i said the uh, oh, sir my officer garrow uh, what happened what what what's the incident here he said well you know there's uh, i saw these two guys you know walking down a the street they're uh, probably down at the end of of Taunton Avenue by now, but uh hey, you know they didn't belong here, you know, so mm-hmm. thought you ought to go look into it. I said, Well, what do you mean they don't belong here? What what are they doing that's suspicious that you think something that you think you need an officer to go down there and talk to them? What's what is it? Well there are two black guys. I said, Uh-huh. And go ahead, what
3: else?
0: Right. He said, what do you mean what else? That's it. This guy wanted me to go and investigate, stop and question two kids walking down the street because he had never seen them before and they were black okay
3: yeah
0: so i said look i can't do that
3: right
0: so the guy so the guy the guy calls up my lieutenant and i get a call he orders me to go down there and to do it
2: right yeah something you're totally okay Mm. Yeah.
0: You just don't do things like this. I said, right. okay, all right. So I go down there. I uh, I see the guys. They went into a they went into a uh, a weenie joint, you know, New York systems for hot mm-hmm. dogs.
3: Yeah.
0: So I I drove back, and uh, I told the uh, the store owner that had first called me up. I said, uh, well, you're right. He says, ah, said, ah. So what are they up to? I said, I don't know. I said, but they are black. You're right. That was was all right. So, right. So the guy called up and filed a complaint against me. And I had to deal with this. I had to deal with this lieutenant over not uh, questioning them, taking their names down and uh, doing what they thought I should have done. And as far as a field interview, I mean we're talking about two o'clock in the afternoon, we're talking about an area that's heavily populated with car dealerships, coffee shops, I, I these are two guys probably on a lunch break, you know, and uh, I just wasn't going to do it. And uh, I caught some heat for that. I didn't get suspended. I wasn't disciplined. But uh, I had uh, I had some meaningful discussion with the lieutenant because I was I was 30 years old when I went on the job.
3: Yeah. So it
0: wasn't like I was some spring chicken, you know, making, you know, looking to uh, polish anyone's doorknobs for them. I, I went in there. And I said, uh, look, I said, absent any behavior, I said, I had no right to go up there and bother those kids. You know, Mm -hmm. I said, if now, if you want to, if you want to, you know, participate, you know, push this further, we can push it further. But I'm telling you right now, the captain isn't going to go for this. That was the kind of experience that I had back in 1985, 86. And Mm -hmm. these kinds of things, uh, that kind of attitude would rear its head every once in a while. And you gotta, you just gotta make sure that you don't become part of it. And if you if you observe something, you gotta make sure you do something about it.
2: You think all that anger is, it's pimped up, and now here we are in an explosion and these, you know, Black Lives Matter, everybody's so upset uh, with well, the years you, you and You can't years. blame, mm-hmm.
0: you can't blame people, you cannot blame anybody for tolerating uh, years of, 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 uh, of mistreatment, and having something like that happen, uh, like we saw in Minneapolis, you just and then expect nothing to happen. You right. you can't. That's 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 a result. Yeah. What what's what's happening now? What's happening now is uh, at the very least uh, several decades of of treatment at the at the hands of of uh, a, a, a very small minority of, of law enforcement people that just don't do their jobs properly. They, there are, and, and I, it's, it's an ugly, it's an ugly admission. It's not pretty, but there are people with badges and guns that should not have them and should not be doing what they're doing for a living. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. I wasn't afraid to say it to people that I worked with. I wasn't afraid to put my name on paper and back it up with evidence when I was a police officer right. and I'm certainly not going to um, shy away from, uh, from commenting that, yeah, there are some serious problems in certain parts of this country where people shouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. And, uh, I'm not one bit surprised and, uh, it's, it's going to be, a it's going to be a while before, uh, things, uh, to get better, but things are going to have to. Things are definitely going to have to change in the way that uh, police departments um, address the issues that they're faced with. They're going to have to. Right. I don't. I don't. I don't believe in the defunding. I don't. I don't believe in any of that. Uh, but there are certain uh, transformational changes that have to be made to the to uh, training. To vetting people that are candidates to become police officers, and I will tell you, these knuckleheads, these clowns, uh, make ev- all the good cops. They just yeah. makes them look bad. They, they are they it's are nothing but embarrassments. They're embarrassments. It's a
2: shame, yeah. I'm
0: telling you, you know, it's a shame. They're embarrassments. I never had I never had problems like this with anybody in our community. Yeah. Never. We didn't have officers that had these kinds of problems because. We, we serviced the community in the way the community was supposed to be serviced. Correct. You know, I mean, we go out of our way. Last year, like two years ago, was it two years ago or last year, before, before, before any of this happened, my police department started engaging the public in coffee shops. And it was called uh, Coffee with a Cop. And mm-hmm. anybody could go and they, they would announce where the command staff, members of the police department would be. Uh, having coffee, and they would be at, let's say, a certain Dunkin' Donuts on a certain intersection, and that'd be between the hours of noon and three or four, they would be in that Dunkin' Donuts, and if there was anything you wanted to talk about with one of those police officers, command staff now, you know, captains, deputy chief, chief of police, any concerns you have, we would love to hear from you, and they do this on a regular basis, They do it on a regular basis and they give a voice to people. They allow people to express themselves in any way they want. I would have people come into my office and express their, their aggravation with a car stop. And I would say, well, you know what, if that's what happened, I want to know about it. Let's Mm -hmm. bring the officer in. The officer comes in, he explains what happened, why this car with kids was, was stopped. Reasonable explanation um, And the, the woman that came in with her complaint was very happy, but she loved more than anything else She loved the fact that someone was listening to her of course listening to everything she was saying even though some of it was definitely not complimentary of the police officer, but once she had an opportunity to talk to me and then I offered her the opportunity to talk to the officer, and he came in, and again, she was allowed to express her concerns over what happened. Yeah. When, he ex- when this officer explained what had happened, she looked at her son, and she said, is that what, is this officer telling me the truth? And the kid said, yes. And she said, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You didn't tell me. How come you didn't tell me that?
3: Right. Well,
0: the kid, the kid, the kid was he was late coming home and he 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 didn't really tell the full truth to his mom. So she felt that the officer was inappropriate in what he did. And when I gave her a chance to voice her concerns and she wasn't that pleasant to me, she wasn't that pleasant to the officer, but she had a chance to find out what happened i've always gotten along with her, and so have other members of the police department, but she so appreciated the fact that someone listened to her, listened to everything she had to say that's you right. know that's important that's important to people you, you, you just you just can't disregard people 's concerns, you know, and no matter what you know no matter what what a person's color is, no matter where they're from, no matter what their background. If you stop a car, you walk up to that car, you have no idea what these people have gone through. Right. You have no idea what kind of mistreatment they may have have uh, been beset upon them in their homes. No idea how they had been treated prior to you meeting them for the first time. So everything that you do is gonna make a lasting impression.
2: Armin, do you think that we are going to recover from this? Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind, because uh, uh, the, the, major, the vast majority of people in this country are good people, they're hardworking people, uh, and, and the vast majority of law enforcement personnel are good people, hardworking people, and uh, just about every single one of them went on uh, to the job with uh, good intentions mm-hmm. Uh uh, very few, very few uh, may have uh, nefarious intentions, and that's unfortunate. That happens everywhere; it's a part of our society. But we're going to we're going to recover. We're going to rebound, and uh, things are going to be okay. It's going to take a while, and it has to take a lot of affirmative work on right. the part of the, uh, the the Department of Justice and all of the law enforcement agencies throughout the country. Yeah, they're going to have to make an affirmative uh, adjustment uh, to vetting uh, uh, potential uh, personnel uh, for their uh, sworn officers and, uh, and in-service training, and they're going to have to make an affirmative uh, change to their own uh, uh, self-policing, as it were. They're going to have to do that. If they don't, uh, then there won't be uh, things that can get worse.
2: What advice would you give to new candidates who want to get on the force? Um, you know, people are very hesitant about becoming a cop, but then you also have these people who want to help make change, so they are joining the force just for that reason. What advice? If
0: that's well, if if the, if, if that's the genuine reason, organically right. that someone wants to come onto the uh, the police department uh, mm-hmm. to do good, to maintain and and, and hopefully improve because some some qualities of life in certain communities are not that good, and you don't want to maintain them. You want to improve them. So if that's your intention, is to improve the quality of life for the people that you are hired to serve, Uh by all means, uh, expect expect people to want to hurt you. Expect people that may want to kill you. Uh, Expect that people will uh, be unnecessarily in awe of you and unnecessarily in fear of you. Uh, Be prepared for all of these things, but you have to keep a level head. You absolutely have to keep a level head, keep all of your personal matters at home. Uh, you know, if you don't think you can do that, if you don't, if, if you think that your personal attitudes uh, are going and your opinions are going to flow into this kind of work, then this is not the, this is not the job for you. It really is not the job. And you have to be in superb physical condition you have to you have to see this like a professional athlete right every time you go in there because you never know what's going to happen and you have to do it for your own good so that you can live thrive and survive and help someone another day but you also want to do it for the benefit of the people that you're dealing with whether it's a witness a victim or even a suspect they have to place under arrest if you're physically capable of maintaining control without without doing something that's going to harm them well, that's a good thing, and everything will turn out all right if you're doing that, but you have to maintain very, very uh, distinct and uh, advanced mental conditioning and physical conditioning. That's, that's absolutely tantamount, and this can't be looked at as a fraternity, it can't be looked at as a party, it can't be looked at as a, as a, oh, a joy all good time with all the buddies, this has to be viewed as a profession, just as a, just as a, just as a medical profession. And it has to be And law enforcement has to be willing to evolve with the society. It's a part of, uh, there, there can't be this, this, this attitude of, well, that's old school. That's the way we used to do it. No, that, that's, that really has to change. You have to, you have to grow live and breathe with the society that's around you. And it's got to be, with respect to the different kinds of communities there are in different uh, parts of the country. But there has to be at the very, at the very minimum, there has to be a clear, a consistent um, uh, uh, protocol of conduct and behavior and treatment of people. And there also has to be consistent consistency with the statutes, right. with the state statute. That, that's absolutely tantamount. You know, a weapon can't be viewed as less than lethal here, but lethal over there. It's either lethal or it's not. Right. And um, I'm, I'm hearing things that uh, a certain uh, a taser weapon is considered uh, uh, a deadly use of force in the state of Georgia. Now, I don't know. I'm going to, I do not know what the state statute says, but if in, if in one, if in one jurisdiction, it's considered less than lethal, but in another jurisdiction, it's considered lethal that 's a problem just as just as the conduct of an officer with with regard to uh, treatment of people and the and the speech they use with people and the regard they have for people it can 't be different from one jurisdiction to the next it can 't be mm-hmm. it cannot be it has to change it has to be consistent it has to be fair you know and uh if if you don 't believe that then it 's not the job for you. It really isn't. Just as if you were a surgeon, if you didn't believe in laser technology uh, in surgery, if you absolutely don't believe it and the old way of going in and cutting with a knife is the better way, well, I think we could all agree it's not the job, is it, for that individual that believes that. And and so it is with any profession. Things have to, things have to, to change with society for the betterment of the individuals in that society. And that's how law enforcement, and most law enforcement, over 90% of law enforcement officers believe that and work like that. I've seen the way police officers work either side by side uh, in my department or in other departments in other cities and states and other jurisdictions. Yeah. And I have to say, um, I have full compliments on the, way they be- on the way they carry themselves. But unfortunately, and every single cop that's listening, everybody knows some low life dirtbag that happens to have a badge and a gun that they have to work with. Everybody knows at least one or two guys like that. And if there's going to be a meaningful change and progress, law enforcement officers have to be willing to take people like this and uh, extract them from their ranks. They have to be willing to do that. Right. And, That's that's tantamount. That that's important. And it's not easy. I know it's not easy. It's not easy to put your name on paper to explain that you saw an officer uh, spit in someone's face when they were handcuffed and kicked them. That's not an easy thing to do. So if you're if you have a problem with uh, reporting something like that and doing something about it and intervening, then this is not the job for you.
3: Right.
0: Not the job. Sorry, because things like that happen and they will happen and you will be called to task as to whether or not uh, you're going to do something about it. It's a very dangerous profession. It's 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 a very uh, it's the kind of profession where uh, everything could matter. The the viewpoint of a child's outlook on life could matter, could matter. Based on the contact that child has with a police officer when they walk into the house and, and settle something at that property, whatever the case was, whether the officer was there to return a stolen bicycle or arrest his father because he assaulted his mother, right. all of these things are going to weigh on that child's mind and, and have an impression for the rest of that child's life. You know um, You know, officers have multiple contacts with people every day. But some people have just one contact in their whole life with a police officer, and that contact may set in motion an attitude that you yourself may not realize you you implemented, good or bad. Yeah. You, you may not know for many, many years. Uh, I once gave a baseball card to an eight-year-old boy in a Dunkin' Donuts and signed it for him and gave it to him. And that was over well over 20 years ago. And uh, just recently, that lad uh, later uh, went to uh, fight uh, overseas and came back and founded a charitable organization for officers who uh, are suicidal, I mean, former veterans who are suicidal, and um, veterans who have disabilities and are trying to make it from day to day and he founded something called the Valhalla Project. Mm -hmm. And he wrote me, contacted me through Facebook, and told me that because of things I said on that card, and because of something I had said to him when I gave him the card, he never forgot it. He never forgot it. If I had mistreated that kid's mother or him, he would have never forgotten that as well. You see what I'm saying?
3: Correct. Yes. So
0: you have to keep that in mind. It's a very, police officers, and this is important of all of the government uh, contacts that, uh, that the citizens can have with their government, of all of the people that there are, no matter where, what agency they work in, no matter what they do for a living for uh, either a city, a state, or the federal government, municipal and state police officers, and sometimes federal officers, are their only 24 hour day continuous contact with your government. Right. only person, the only, you walk out of your house, you go down the street and you see a police officer doing whatever they're doing and, or, or they have to contact you for some reason, that's your only contact. And, and law enforcement officers have to keep that in mind that they serve a very vital, vital, important position in, in the country. It, yeah. They are the only 24 hour contact that your average citizen has whether they're homeless or whether they're having a tough time or it doesn't matter what it is. They're the only contact. And that is a significant position of anyone in any level of law enforcement or any government job. It's the only one where there's 24 hour contact. You've got to appreciate that. You've got to appreciate the influence one way or the other that you could have on a person. It's not easy. It's not because, you, because there are things going on inside the police department that no one knows about, all right. kinds of conflicts, all kinds of uh, things that are going on that, that can negatively influence an officer's capabilities when they're out on the street facing what they have to face.
3: Right. So
0: buckle up, get ready, and make sure that you're handling all of your issues so that you can go out there and, and, and do the, the good job that you want out there to do when you applied for the job. And you've got to be willing to take these clowns and these knuckleheads and get rid of them. Yeah. Sorry. That's, it's, you know, it's, you have to be willing to do it. And the, um, uh, the unions have to be willing to work with management to extract people like this. They yeah. have to. They have to, or else there, or else this kind of thing is going to repeat itself. This kind of thing will happen again, and it'll be worse. You know,
2: uh, mm, can it I, will I, be I, worse. Mm, that's right. I just want to get, I uh, want to ask a question. Do you sure. think that perhaps every two years they should go under psychological um, care and do the JST? Do you think that would help?
3: I think,
0: well, I will tell you this, a a psychological review of a candidate, a a psychological review of a candidate, like a, uh, a, of a candidate coming onto the job would have to be remarkably different than one for someone who's been on the job for two, four, six, seven eight ten years. Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't have, I don't see any reason why anyone wouldn't want to do that. But, but there has to be something in place to assure the public that they're getting quality treatment. But um, one, one thing I would caution against, if there's nothing in the officer's behavior, if there's nothing in the mm-hmm. officer's conduct mm-hmm. that would uh, give, give rise or give pause to someone right. or raise concerns about psychological well-being, well, I don't know how effective it's going to be if you just uh, do it every two years. If it's now, if it's if it's a uh, if it's a um, a matter of hiring. If it was something that upon hiring it was agreed to that you would submit to this. Well, that's different right. because it was a, it was part of the hiring practice.
3: Right. I
0: think for uh, that that might be a better avenue. So if you're telling a candidate, hey, look, you've passed the psychological test, you've been vetted, Uh, in order to get hired for this job, you have to agree that every so often we have the right to uh, institute an examination to assure that you're still of sound mind. Correct. If you you sign on the dotted line, Mm. you've signed on the dotted line. You don't want to do that well i guess that's not the job for you right if you're if you're already on the job and it wasn't part of the hiring procedure it would probably going to um see i really don't know i really don't know how they're going to work that out but they're probably going to have to have some reason to institute uh, to uh, administer a retesting that's my guess that's probably the response you're going to get from uh the uh, officers
2: right I want to thank you so much for uh, giving us all this information. Wait, I want to start that over because hair just went in my mouth. Hold on one second, sorry. All right, Armin, I want to thank you so much for all this information. I love discussing your education, all your films, your series that you've well, been thank in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What would do you have anything coming up?
0: Um, there's a film called CODA, C-O-D-A, Children of Deaf Adults, mm-hmm. uh, that I had a small role in that should be, I don't know when it's going to be released. I think they're still in post-production. I, uh, I just finished something called 645, which is a, uh, a horror picture. Uh, it was a story by uh, Gar- uh, Craig Singer and written by Robert Dean Klein. Uh, it's, a, it's a horror picture, and uh, that's due to be released. I'm not sure uh, how it's going to be released or where, but that should be released in the fall. It's called 6:45. Uh, something we filmed in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Okay. And I'm currently in the middle of uh, filming something called Shackled. And uh, we stopped on March 12th, not not because of COVID, right. but we would have had to anyway but we're, we're still waiting to film just a couple more days in warmer weather, uh, in a playground. That'll, uh, that'll finish uh, capping that thing that's called shackled. I'm not sure when that'll release, but I usually make announcements on Facebook okay. um, uh, as to what is going on. And I also make uh, postings on my Instagram account, uh, to let people know, uh, uh, where, uh, what kinds of work uh, they might be expected to see me in, in the future. Facebook and, uh, and Instagram is what I use.
2: What are the handle names for Instagram and Facebook?
0: It's, uh, well, on, uh, for Instagram, it's armin.garrow.5. And Facebook?
2: And,
0: and Facebook, it's just Garrow. They'll see me, uh, a photo of me with a with a black, uh, I think a black leather jacket or something like that, and, and I just make announcements on that. It's a there's a public page, and then there's my own Facebook page. The same photo.
2: Okay, and they can go on your website, armingarrow.com.
0: They can go on armingarrow.com to uh, that has not been updated in quite some time, because I'm waiting for an opportunity. To work with uh, GoDaddy mm-hmm. to uh, redesign and uh, have other features in it, but there are some uh, clips there from commercials i've done and uh, scenes from different things from sopranos brotherhood uh, things of that nature yeah
2: thank, thank you so much. I enjoyed uh, getting to know you more and uh, Give Mona my love, and thank you guys so much for everything that you do.
0: Oh, will do. She says hello, yeah. and I appreciate it. Uh, this was fun. This was fun.
2: Thank you so much, and congratulations on your marriage this year. That that was a big positive.
0: Thank you. Yes, thank you very yeah. much. I appreciate it. Appreciate thank you. that very thank, much.
2: Thank you so much. You guys can uh, go on to my website, MelissaClarkShow.com, and you can find out more information uh, on Ar- Armin, and I will go ahead and put his uh, website on his bio. So thanks so much, Armin.
0: Thank you. You take care.
2: You too. Thank you, Armin, again for that wonderful conversation. I recently found this gentleman, Clifford Jones, on Instagram. He's a pianist of classical music and a teacher. Cliff, thank you so much. You're unbelievable. You played in the beginning of the show. Uh, I love Beethoven. I love classical music. I found you on Instagram, and we really appreciate you being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you. This is an amazing opportunity.
2: Aw, thank you so much. It's, I, I love the piano, I love the sound of it, the sophistication, the elegance. Uh, when did you start playing the piano?
1: And I started playing rather late. I started um, in high school at the age of 14 years old. And um, the way I stumbled upon it is um, one of my close friends at that time, he played the piano, so he suggested that we take a, a music class together. And once I got into the music class, I learned all the basics of music. Um, I learned about all the old composers, Beethoven, Mozart, and I learned all everything that I needed to know to, to jumpstart teaching myself. And um, after the class was over, I taught myself for three years. And then um, from 14 to 17, then from 17 to 25, I attended the Harlem School of the Arts where I took lessons at. And now these last seven years, I'm a teacher at the same place.
2: That's, that's amazing. And you studied with Miss Delilah. Is that correct? Yes, yes. No. In your bio, you said from 17 to 25, you were with her. How did she change your life?
1: Well, she changed my life uh, like drastically because um, during that time, uh, I I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with music. I I did not know exactly what avenue I wanted to, wanted to go. I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself because you know, coming from where I come from, you don't play, you don't see a lot of people, black people playing classical piano, right? So. She took me under her wing, she saw my potential, and um, she took me took my talent from here all up to here. You know, she showed me so many things, imparted so not in not even just piano, but also like life lessons while teaching me that, that I still value to this day and I still cherish cherish to this day with me. So it's it's amazing.
2: Why do you think it's important for um, young adults to have a mentor in their lives?
1: Um because the thing is that you can't get everything that you need from your parents. You know, your parents have one way of seeing things and they do the best that they know how. But sometimes you need somebody else that's, that's outside of, that's not related to you, to take you to different places, to take to enlighten and enrich your mind with different things about life.
3: So
1: mm. uh, that's it's really important to have a mentor.
2: What does classical music mean to you?
1: Classical music, t- classical music means to me, it's like the, be- the beginning of everything. It's the basis of all music. It's, you can't have a a big building without having structure, so to speak, you know. So classical music to me, classical music means to me, it's everything. It's it's the meat, the potatoes, the vegetables, the whole entire full course meal. And the beautiful thing about it I love so much is there's so many ways that you can express yourself through classical music. You know, where one of my favorite quotes, I forgot who's it by, but it's, it goes, where music fail, where words fail, music speaks. And um, I definitely get that through classical music.
2: Music has helped me throughout this whole pandemic, this whole year that we've been going through. So, so I love music so much, and especially classical music. And watching you play the piano, you get into it. Where do you That's go? Cool. Where do you go when you're playing the music, the piano? I
1: just go to, I just go to a, a different world. Like I just really tap into like a euphoric, <laughs> I, I can't even find the right word. I just go to like a different plane and I, I'm able to really express who I am, how I'm feeling and you know, whoever's around me, I, I do my best to make sure that they, can that they can feel everything that I'm feeling. Did you ever go to Lincoln Center? Do you go to Lincoln Center? I, I've been there a couple times actually mm. and the experience is beyond amazing.
2: You never played there yet, though.
1: No, not yet. Not yet. That's in the works, though. That's. In you the works. will.
2: I could. I could totally see you there. You. You will. <laughs> and what do you? You're. you a teacher. So what do you teach your students?
1: Um. Well, besides piano, I teach them a lot of life lessons. Like you know, with piano, number one, for anybody that, everybody that's listening and anybody that's interested in learning, whether you're young, whether you're older, number one, you can do it. Number two, it's insanely difficult. It's really challenging. So what I teach my students is that no matter what obstacle you face in life, if you just be patient, patience is number one, be patient and you be consistent with the practice and trust the process, you're going to overcome it. And that's that's like one of the main things that I try to teach my students, that um, everything that I'm teaching you has a life lesson. You got to be patient with the process. You got to work hard. You got to get rid of the instant gratification that like a lot of us love, especially in today's time, and just keep at it because there's going to be that day where you break through. And that, when that day comes, sky's the limit.
2: I think also as a student, you should let go of your ego as well, right? Leave it yes, in definitely. your hand.
1: Mm. Yes, definitely, definitely.
2: Let's talk about the Harlem School of Arts.
3: Yes,
1: I, was I,
2: look, I was looking up the information because I'm, I'm a native New Yorker and I love Harlem. My mother, actually she grew up in Spanish Harlem. So um, that school was actually founded by Dorothy Maynor in 1964 yes. and she was a soprano. And for people uh, who don't know what a soprano is, that's the highest note that you can hit as a singer, is that correct?
1: That's right,
2: that's correct. So It's pretty interesting. So why is that school so special?
1: Um, well, it's been, in the, it's been in the neighborhood for years, like you said, since the 60s. And, yeah. Um, compared from then to now, the, the school has shown tremendous growth. Um, they, like, like right now, they're currently doing a renovation um, project. They're almost finished with it um, to bring even more people into the school. Um, it serves like as a place where it's considered home away from home. Yes. You know, so like you, could, you could be going through XYZ at home, whatever the case may be, or you can be having a whole entire problems in school, or wherever you're at.
3: Yeah.
1: Once you step foot into into HSA, it's a whole entire family loving, caring like it's just beautiful there. It's really amazing there. I love uh, it there.
2: I'd love to visit that place one day. Uh, a yes, lot of the. <laughs> a lot of the students uh, have went on to prestigious schools. I was looking at uh, Berklee College of Music, yes. LaGuardia, yes, yes. LaGuardia mm-hmm. New Oma, in Queens, uh, Hofstra, mm-hmm. and NYU, just to name a few. Yes. How cool
3: that's is right. that? Right. Wow. Well,
2: that's that's pretty amazing. What do you want uh, to change in the musical world?
1: Um, What's your goals? goals as, mm. my, so my goals as, as a Black man, number one, is to get... People to understand black people to understand that it is totally cool it is totally fun it is totally fine to play classical music yeah. you know there's there's a stigma that all right, if you're black you shouldn't play classical music etc etc that's not that's nonsense because number one everything all forms of music comes from classical music you know there's, there's and also another thing that I want to one of my goals is that if even if there's kids that like are interested and they, they see their friends like ah oh, they're not doing it. Even if they, you know, if they really want to do it, I want them to understand that, like, it's really possible. You know, just don't be afraid to stand out. Right. You know, because, like, I had to go through the same thing as well, where I had to, I really loved classical music. At first, I was really shy about it and almost ashamed that I played piano, classical piano, because it wasn't the norm. But, you know, it's, it's it was the best decision I ever made. And I just want to impart that same... Um, knowledge to other kids as well and, and everybody else so
2: well this year is about change so yes you're 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 such a, an amazing uh, inspiration to young people and um you know classical music it brings out the best in us i believe
3: mm, yes I,
2: I know as soon as i wake up i have my coffee and i sit there and i listen to mozart or sebastian bach and i just i feel so smart <laughs> you know like it just <laughs> it brings out the best in me and yes, um uh, and, and watching you play, and I'll reiterate, it's just, it, it's just, it's so, it's so beautiful to see you go into a different uh, dimension, if you will. Yeah,
3: yes. thank you
2: uh, so much. No, thank you. And I'm just so happy to have met you and, and found your information online. Uh, so we really appreciate uh, you being on the show. Where can we find you?
1: You can find me on Instagram at cliff, C-L-I-F-F, underscore, Jones, J-O-N-E-S. Underscore pianist, P I A N I S T. And you can also find me at, on Instagram as well, Jones, J O N E S, school, PP, on Instagram as well.
2: So you work at HSA. Do you do any private lessons?
1: Yes, I do private lessons both at Home School of the Arts and I also have my small business where called the Jones School of Piano Pedagogy. Um, I do um, my own private lessons through there as well.
2: Thank you so much. Cliff's gonna uh, close us out and uh, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.